The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Church, you're all good? All good? Enjoying this heat? It's been crazy, hasn't it? It's been so hot. Crazy, crazy. All right, well, if you've got your Bibles, please go ahead and grab those and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. You can find 1 Peter towards the end of the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, as we've been considering these past few weeks now, the main theme, or the, 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 the theme really for 2017 is what? It's it's radiate. It's radiate, or radiating the life and the love and the worth of Jesus as we live for Jesus in the world. And uh, throughout this year, we're going to be looking at various aspects of what it means to radiate. Uh, for Feb, the month we're in, we're looking at radiating through reaching, radiating through reaching out in mission and evangelism. And so we've called this series for this month, Reach Out, Reach Out. That means to actually use our little tongues to communicate God's big plan of salvation in Jesus. And who knows that that at times is a discouraging task. Who's with me? It can also be a difficult task. And for a lot of us, a daunting task. It can be overwhelming to speak to someone about Jesus. And so the intention of this series is to pastorally come alongside us as a church to encourage us not to grow weary in doing that good work of evangelism. That's the intention, that's the purpose, that's the aim of this series. And so with that in view, let's come to our text, 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look up the first 16 verses. And as we read these opening lines, I want you to notice something really, really important. I want you to notice just how happy and joyful and ecstatic uh, Peter is as he writes these opening words. Verse 1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in what? In abundance. It's like Niagara Falls. It's abundant. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice. Amen? Greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, 
the prophets who spoke of the grace that would come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. That's how magnificent the gospel is. Verse 13. Therefore, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Heavenly Father, would you excite us with what excites you this morning? And what excites you is the praise of your people, Lord. That's what excites you. And that's why, Lord God, you desire to win a people so that they would find in Jesus their heart's treasure and praise you. And so, Lord God, I pray as we think about reaching out, as we think about uh, witnessing a mission this morning, I pray, would you help us have more of your heart for the lost? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this morning we're thinking about radiating through reaching out in mission. And I want to do two main things in our time together. Firstly, I want us to look at the main motivation for mission. The main motivation for mission or what motivating influence ought to fuel and energize and sustain our outreach. All right, so that's first. And then secondly, I want us to Look at, I want to show you from the New Testament what motivations the New Testament authors and writers used to encourage their readers to come to Christ. And that's going to be practical and helpful, I trust. And so basically, this is a sermon on motivation. So first, considering our own motivation for mission, what ought that to be? Well, let me ask this question by taking you on a bit of a journey, a story from my own discovery in my own life. About 10 years ago or so, I asked myself an important question. And the question was, what is a Christian? That was the question. All right, it's a simple question, but it's a profound question when you start to think about it and consider it in light of Scripture. So that was the question, what is a Christian? And I, I had conversations with people, and obviously I turned to the Bible itself, always a helpful place to go when you've got questions of faith. And, and after kind of searching and looking into it, I made the discovery, all right, for some of you it's, it's going to be quite a straightforward one, but for me at the time I was like, wow, okay, I get it, that to be a Christian amongst other things is primarily to be a disciple, a disciple. Some of you are like going, oh, yeah, sure, a disciple. And, and so I thought, great. Great, awesome. To, to be a disciple, that's what it means to be a Christian. And, and I went to Matthew 28, which was quite conclusive for me, because Jesus, we all know the passage, Jesus has just risen from the dead. He's gathered his disciples together. He's on the hillside of Galilee, just about to ascend back to the Father. And he gives his people, his church, by way of extension, all of us, our marching orders. And he says, okay, this is what I want you to do. Go and make disciples of all the nations, right? 
Now, Jesus could have used there Christians, and it would have been the same meaning. Because to be a Christian, after all, is to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. And that's exactly what disciples do, right? They come under the teaching, the authority of a master. And as Christians, we are under the authority and mastery of Jesus Christ. And so to be a Christian is to be a disciple. And I thought, great, sweet. I've solved the riddle. But then, of course, that led to a further question. Because I thought, all right, what constitutes being a disciple? What does it actually mean and look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And again, I had to go to Matthew 28, because here Jesus tells us. He says, okay, go make disciples of all the nations. And what does he say then? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then what does he add? It's critical. What does he add? And teaching them, these new converts, these new disciples to do what? To obey. There's the key phrase. Obey what? Obey everything I have commanded you. So to be a disciple is to wholeheartedly obey Jesus Christ, the whole body of teaching. All right, so we, we're not to play this pick or mix game with the teachings of Jesus. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I like that, but I don't like evangelism. Jesus would say, if you want to be a part of my team, it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. And, and this idea, this reality, the apostle Peter picks up as well in our own passage because we need to remember Peter was there that day. He heard Jesus' words. He saw Jesus ascend. And so he says in verse 2, he says, we're to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And then towards the end of our section, verses 13 through 16, He says that we're to be holy in all we do. Listen to what he says in verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Before you were a Christian, before you were a disciple, now be obedient. And he kind of fleshes that out some more in verse 15. He says, but just as he who called you is holy, so here's the logic, so be holy in all you do. Other translations say, be holy in all your conduct. Another translation says, be holy in everything you do, which sounds just like Jesus' command, obey everything I have commanded you, right? So everything, it's to be an all-inclusive obedience so that every facet of our lives, every aspect of our lives are to be placed under the authority, the liberating, loving lordship of Jesus Christ. What we do with our time, what we do with our money, what we do with our energy, our ambitions, our thoughts, our desires, every part of us is to be down, down, down at Jesus' worthy feet, including, and here's the point, including what we do for Jesus out there in the world, witness, outreach, mission, is to be an aspect of obedience, obedience. And so I thought, 10 years ago, I thought, great, I've solved it, all right, to be be a Christian is to be a disciple, a disciple is to be wholehearted for Christ, to wholeheartedly obey Him, and that's basically where I stopped in my understanding of Christianity, and I think I'm safe in saying today that most Christians stop here in their understanding. Christian, disciple, wholeheartedly obey Jesus. But this is the discovery I made a few years after that initial realization. I came to see that I hadn't gone far enough. I hadn't gone far enough. What I mean by that is for our obedience, listen, this is really, really important, for our obedience to truly be Christian, 
in the true definition of the term, to truly be Christian, then our obedience needed to be motivated by a particular thing, by a particular fuel. And of course, that motivating influence is supposed to be what? Anyone? The Holy Spirit. Amen. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is love. All of them. But, but, but joy. <laughs> Tricking me here. Joy. 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 Delight in Jesus. Happiness in God. Not guilt. All right. For way too many Christians, it's guilt. What, what drives you? Guilt. I've got to. I've got to earn God's favor, his acceptance, his applause. No, no, no. It's supposed to be joy. And this is exactly what Peter unpacks for us before he starts telling us in verses 13 and following throughout the rest of his epistle what it means to be holy. He unpacks the heart, the throbbing center of the Christian gospel, the Christian message, which is because of Christ and what he has achieved for us through his death and resurrection, we are blessed beyond blessed. Listen to his words in verse 2. The very last phrase, he says, grace and peace be yours in what? Abundance. It's not a leaky tap in your garden. It's Niagara Falls. And it never stops. It's abundant. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace flowing from the throne toward us, his people. Then he, he, he continues and, and he says, happily says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Well, he tells us, in his great mercy, he's given us certain things. What? Well, new birth to begin with. New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means that as believers, we have a whole new identity. Children, they're born into a family. That family becomes a part of their identity. Is that not true? All right. They're, 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 they're kind of secure in that family. If it's a good family. Right, they're secure, they have certain privileges, they're provided for, they're perfect, uh, protected. And, and for us believers, we, through Christ, have been born into the greatest family on earth. A family free from sin, free from brokenness, which means our identity ought to be secure in Jesus. But he goes on. He says, not only do we have this identity, but we also have this incredible future. Peter says this inheritance that is kept safe in heaven for you, this inheritance that can never be spoiled or fade or, 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 or vanish, fade away, which is, of course, what we've got to look forward to as believers, that through Christ's resurrection, he's restoring all things, and this resurrected king is resurrecting me. He's living within us, and one day when he returns, he will resurrect all things and renew the whole universe, and we will be there resurrected with the resurrected king forever and ever, and it will never fade. <laughs> it's never going to fade away. Every moment in glory, as I've mentioned many times, will better be better than the moment just before it. We've looked at that in other sermons and other series. And so this is what we're to rejoice over. This is to fuel and stoke the fire of joy within our hearts. Little wonder, Peter goes on to say in verse 6, these words, I love this. He says, in all this, you greatly rejoice. You know, this could be translated, could be translated, in all this, you skip for joy. Now listen, have you ever seen a sad person skip for joy? Have you? So what are you doing? Well, I'm skipping. Why? Because I'm sad. Have you ever, 
It's never happened, it never will happen. Only people who have experienced something wonderful and joyful, some news, some experience, some achievement, causes you to leap for joy. Amen? Skip for joy. It was like that when I first got saved. It still is. Like, you've seen me, right? see me. I can't stop doing it. I'm jumping for joy because I know what Christ has done for me. I was a pagan, defiled, doomed, damned, disobedient, a son of wrath, but because of his great love, and that love will never end. Skip for joy. Can I hear an amen? So this joy, skipping for joy, ought to be the motivating influence that fuels and sustains and energizes all our obedience, including the obedience to Jesus to make disciples of all the nations. One last thing here on this particular part in this passage, verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. That is, you cling to him. You treasure him, you draw your life, your joy, your joy from Jesus, and as a result, you are filled with what? An inexpressible and glorious joy. Who wants more of that? Would you know where it's found? In Jesus. You don't have to do anything for more joy. All you need to do is just say, yes, yes, I believe that you are for me. I believe that you have ravished my heart. I believe that you have given me this great inheritance in this great future, and I just receive it, receive it, receive it. Really, biblical faith is just saying, yes, it's saying, yes, I receive, yes. And the more we say, yes, the bucket of our hearts plunges into that stream, that life-giving stream of God's life and joy, and we are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. Charles Spurgeon said it's inexpressible and full of glory because it's not human. It's God's very own joy mediated to us by the person of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. It's God's very own joy. And he wants every one of us, if we are his, to be filled with this inexpressible and glorious joy. He wants us to skip for joy even through hard times. Peter says in verse 6, So this is to be the motivating influence. And this is why I've always loved and been moved by um, the opening lines of Matt Redman's great song, Missions Flame. And I'm going to sing it to you because songs deserve to be sung. All right. And and it goes, how does it go? You know the song? It goes this way. Let worship be the fuel for missions flame. Did you hear that? Let worship be the fuel for missions flame. We're going with a passion for your name. We're going because we care about your fame. And then he adds, send us out. Send us out. Worship, white hot worship. Our response to all that God has done for us and all that he is toward us in Christ is to be the fuel, the drive, the incentive, the motivation that causes us to open our mouths. Listen to me. Listen to me, guilt may get you to open your mouth, but joy will fill your mouth with what the world really needs, life and authenticity. And so sermons on evangelism shouldn't resemble drive-by shootings just to make you guilty. If you really love Jesus, you'll tell the world that Jesus lives. No, no, no. But each sermon is to display the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ in the gospel so that your hearts increasingly melt with love for him so that the gospel penny continues to drop and drop further, 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 further. And as a result, it's joy, inexpressible 
and glorious. Amen? A little story before I move on to the next point. <laughs> when I first got saved, it was just like that. It was skipping for joy, like literally, all right? In my in-law's place, I've mentioned it many times, I drove them nuts because I would skip for joy around the house and sing my Redeemer lives. And they think, this guy is crazy. And I was, I was crazy. And anyway, I returned to the UK. And the first thing I did after returning to England was I, I phoned my old school, all right? My high school, and my school was SJB, which st- stood for and stands for, it's still there, St. John the Baptist School, all right? St. John the Baptist School was a Catholic school. And I was one of those kids that made teachers and still make teachers, you know, want to bring back the cane for, all right? <laughs> and my head of year, her name, no joke, her name was Mrs. Leach. And you can imagine with a name like that, <clears throat> the torment she received, especially for me because I was the ringleader, Mrs. Leach. And I got saved, and I knew that I'd been terrible, horrible to this lady. And so I made contact with her, and I remember sitting in her office, and I was waiting for her to come in. I was a little nervous, all right? And she came in, and, and we had this conversation, and, and, and amidst the conversation, she said, uh, Lewis, I, I really thought that you would end up in prison. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. And then, and then, I revealed to her my grand idea, my grand plan, and it was to go to the uh, assembly, school assembly, in order to tell the kids about Jesus. And I remember telling her, and I was so excited about it. I, I was expecting her to be excited about it as well. And, and so I was kind of, oh, I'm going go to come to the school, and I'll tell them about what Jesus has done in my life. And she was smiling. She was smiling, but I know now that inwardly she was saying, <laughs> not on my dead body, all right? It's never going to happen. I've been still, I'm waiting for the call. Right? So 17 years ago, I'm still waiting for the, the call to go and share. But the point is this. My approach was wrong. All right, my, 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 my method was wrong. I was very bombastic and just in the office. This is what I'm going to do. Let me tell you, Mrs. Leach. All right, I'm going to go to the school. But listen, that was wrong. But my motivation was right. It was joy because of what Jesus had done and performed in my soul by his grace. And so joy ought to be the influence, the, the continuous, continued sustaining influence and motivation for all we do out there in the world. Can I hear an Amen. All right, let's, let's turn a corner. Let's turn a corner because, because now we, we need to think about um, motivations that we need to adopt and apply while we're out there on the mission field, all right, doing, doing life with our fellow workers and neighbors and sports buddies and family members. What, what motivations are we going to use to help them see their need for Jesus? Tim Keller, in his big book, Send a Church, he highlights how the New Testament writers used at least six different motivations to encourage people to turn to Christ. Six different motivations, six different appeals. And we're going to move through each of these quite quickly. And I trust that these um, motivations will help you and they'll be practical. So, so number one, number one, the first motivation. And it's one that we may kind of initially balk at, and it's fear. It's fear, meaning sometimes the appeal and motivation is to come to Christ out of fear of judgment and death. Did you hear that? Out of fear of judgment and death. Now, 
I think for the majority of us, we, we tend to disassociate ourselves from this particular motivation because we've seen this one abused often, right? You've seen it, like the guy standing on the street corner, they seem to get a kick out of telling people, turn or burn. And they stand there with their placards, gloomy placards with gloomy faces, and they say, repent or perish, you know, the day of judgment is coming, you know, behold the day of wrath. And, and, you, and you kind of look at that and you think, I don't want to be a part of that. And, and rightly so. But listen, here's the thing. Even though that approach is wrong, I think, and even though I think the, the methodology is wrong, the motivation is right. That might strike you. It's right because in the New Testament, we not only see Jesus doing this, but we also see other New Testament writers using the fear of judgment and death to encourage people God would. For example, Luke 12, listen to what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, my friends, right, respectful, no placard, right, he's being respectful as he warns them. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I tell you, whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Jesus is not mincing his words here. The reason? Because he loved people too much. We will only mince our words if we don't really love people. But if we truly love people, we won't mince our words. Oh yes, we'll be patient. Yes, we'll be respectful. But we will tell them the truth because as Hill mentioned last week, we not only care about their suffering, but eternal suffering as well. And he says, I, yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, why did Jesus say those words? Because he wanted his hearers to be struck, to, to pause and to consider their eternity, their eternal destiny, to, to, to consider their desperate condition and their position before God and actually repent and turn to him and find life in him. That's why. And similarly, the, the, the writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 10.31, he says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And again, why did he write that? Why did he pen that? Because he wanted those listening to his letter being read out in the churches to be struck. And I think, this is a precarious position I'm in. And I need to repent. I need to turn to Christ. So this motivation can be used. And yes, we need to use it lovingly, respectfully, patiently. But, but it is authentic. It is valid. It is a legitimate biblical motivation. Amen. Let's move on. Guilt, number two. Guilt. Sometimes the appeal or motivation is to come to Christ out of a desire for release from the burdens of guilt and shame. Again, Matthew, Matthew 12, 11 this time, Jesus is talking to the crowds, and they had been weighed down with legalistic guilt because of the religious leaders. You've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to 612 rules. And they were just burdened, they're being crushed by the weight. And Jesus comes along and he says, I can give you rest for your soul. I can soothe your soul. So come to me and I'll give you rest. Come to me, I'll give you relief and rest and release. And, and many did. You see, a lot of people in our world experience guilt. Maybe not the same guilt as they did. But guilt, maybe they've violated their conscience and they feel bad about something they've done. Or maybe they've harmed someone else and they torment themselves and they can't forgive themselves. And you see, we can come alongside them and show them the solution, namely Jesus himself, the one who took their guilt on the cross for them. He was crushed so that they could be 
forgiven and accepted and freed from their burden of guilt. Can you see? Amen. Let's move on to the third motivation. Number three, attraction. Attraction, what do I mean? Sometimes the appeal or motivation is to come to Christ out of appreciation for the truth of the gospel. That for some, the gospel message, the message of Christianity, is attractively compelling. All right? It kind of stacks up. It, it makes sense of the many struggles in life, the, the, the many hardships that we go through. And, and sometimes people can listen to the message and, and it kind of makes sense to them. It becomes plausible and not only plausible, but believable as well. Uh, and this is where apologetics is helpful. For those of you who know the term, it means more than simply defending the faith. It means presenting the faith persuasively, winsomely. And, and there are great resources uh, to grab, like Ravi Zacharias. He's really helpful. Or Tim Keller, The Reason for God. Or his new book, Making Sense of God, subtitled An Invitation to the Skeptical. All of these books uh, are helpful. And we can place them into the hands of people that, who are seeking or they have questions. And through it, we need to pray that they would see the attractiveness of the Christian message. But, you know, there is a greater apologetic. As, as someone once said, our lives lived truly before the world in a Christ-like way is, is the greatest apologetic. And you know what really, really uh, appeals to people, really uh, kind of just blows them away, is when they see Christians suffer and yet still rejoice. That just blows people away because it's so otherworldly, right? When people suffer in the world, most of them are crumble, they disintegrate. But, but, but Christians, as Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though you suffer these various things. That is so attractive and winsome when people see that in our lives. And we're going to touch on that later on in the year as a part of this Radiate series. So that's attraction. Number four, satisfaction. Satisfaction. Sometimes the appeal or motivation is to come to Christ to satisfy unfulfilled longing. John, in his gospel, he uses this motivation when he records Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, John chapter 4. And what John wants us to see is what that lady experienced, that she had sought life satisfaction in men, in relationships. Jesus lovingly probed that area because he wanted her to see that, that it was empty, that it was futile, looking for joy, looking for satisfaction in relationships, in men. And then he said to her after she had confessed, I can give you living water that can quench your thirst. You, you see what he's saying? And you see what John is getting at by recording that? He, he wants everyone to see that no matter where people look for their satisfaction, they're not going to find it in career, in work, in parenting, in families, in marriage, in, in nothing other than Christ. He's the only one who can give that satisfaction, that heart's longing, and, and, and soothe the ache of our souls. It was, it was this particular motivation, church, that drew me to Jesus. As, a, as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, I, I was trying to find my happiness and identity in soccer, football in the UK, go Arsenal. All right, and we're trying to find, that was for the new guy who's a Chelsea fan. Right, um, <laughs> and I was trying to find it there. And, and I wanted to be a professional soccer player, and I was doing okay, and then I got injured. And then my world fell to pieces. 
And I was in a dead-end job, and I was frustrated. And so I decided to travel as a 19-year-old, to travel, because I thought, oh, I'll, I'll find myself there, right, traveling. And, and I did, and it was fantastic. But I remember this one occasion um, being driven by coach in the outback of Australia. It was a dark night, and I looked out the coach windows. It was traveling toward Alice Springs, I think. And I looked out, and I saw the stars. And you know how the stars shine so brightly in the desert. And I thought to myself, what's it all about? What's life all about? I've got this ache in my heart, this craving in my heart, and nothing will satisfy it. And then about eight months later, one young guy plucked up the courage to tell me about Jesus. And I came to him because I saw in him my heart's satisfaction, and my ache has ached no more. Amen? So that's satisfaction. Number five, desperation desperation. Sometimes the appeal and motivation is to come to Christ for help with a particular problem. Again, we see this motivation all the way through the the Gospels. We we see the Gospel writers telling us about blind people coming to Jesus with their problem. We we read of uh, ladies with issues of blood hemorrhaging for 12 long, painful, arduous years coming to Jesus for relief. We read of lepers, ostracized people, shut out people, God-forsaken people coming to Jesus, and they all had something in common. And that one thing in common was their heart's cry. I'm stuck. No matter where I go, no matter who I turn to, I cannot find relief, and yet they found relief in Jesus. And so we can tell those people that we're reaching out to, you can find relief in Jesus. Why? Because he cares for you. The Word of God says you cast all your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Amen? Lastly, affection. Affection. Sometimes the appeal and motivation is to come to Christ simply out of a desire to be loved, a desire to be loved, placed there by God. Jesus is depicted in the Gospels by the Gospel writers as being a person who is compellingly attractive and appealing. So many people, the crowds, they flocked to him, they, they, they gravitated toward him because they, they saw in him love and kindness, authentic joy. They saw those things. They had little kids, you read of mums, how they picked up their little ones and they, they flocked to Jesus just so Jesus could bless them. Why? Well, because Jesus wasn't standing on a street corner with a placard. He was playing with kids. He was interacting with them, loving them, blessing them, being real, not being standoffish and religious and self-righteous. And they were drawn to him. So many people in our world People that you know desire to be loved. They long to be loved with a true love. Not in some relationship that's going to end up in misery, but a true relationship. You see, Jesus is the only one who can satisfy that longing. Quick story, and we're pretty much done. About three, four years ago, I was on my annual holiday at Foster. Great spot, recommend that. And I was enjoying my annual fish and chips. Seriously, I look forward to it the whole year. It's just awesome. Fresh fish and chips. And I was, I was sitting there, and I was enjoying my fish and chips, and I was kind of tucking in, not tucking in, stuffing myself. And I saw this lady walk by, and I, and I felt a kind of a prompting to tell her, Jesus loves you. And I did what 
often we do when those situations arise, I backed out of it and I continued to stuff my face with the chips and the fish. And I kind of said a little prayer to myself, okay, if she stops at the post office and turns back this way, I will, I will talk to her. And guess what happened? <laughs> she got to the post office and she turned around and she started walking by and I thought, okay, fish and chips, I love you, but I've got to push you aside for a moment. And, and I started to talk to the lady. And I said to her, look, this, this may sound really odd, a bit weird. And by the way, that's a really good way to preface a conversation like the one I had with this lady. I said, it sounds a bit weird, but um, I really sense that Jesus wants you to know that he loves you. And when, when I said that, something happened within her. And then she, she told me that she had been suffering with depression and that she had contemplated suicide many times before. And I, and I had the opportunity just to share with her and to pray with her. And I don't know where she is now, but I trust that she's with Christ. She's in some church somewhere, maybe, because why else would Jesus get me to share that with her? You see, there are so many people in our world, your workplace, your schools, universities, your neighbors, your family members, they desire this love. They're looking for it in all the wrong places, but they can find it in Jesus, the Jesus in you and the Jesus in me. Can I hear an amen? So there you go. Six motivations, six motivations to help you as you do outreach, as you reach out to those around you in your circles of influence. And let me just say this in closing. We need to adopt and apply each of these six motivations because a one-size approach will end up fitting only a few. All right? We need all of these motivations to help people come to Christ. Let me pray. We're going to have communion together. Father God, We'll ask stewards, please, to distribute the, the juice and the bread. That would be fantastic. Thank you. Father, thank you, Father, thank you. You are a good, good Father. You are a good, good Father. And you've saved us and you've placed within us your very own joy that is inexpressible and glorious. And I pray, Lord God, it will just ooze out of us, Lord. It would be the motivating element that fuels all our obedience, especially this obedience to Christ's command to make disciples, to witness, to outreach. Father, I pray, Lord God, you would bless your people. Lord, our God, I know that there are many people here and they find it hard to believe just how good you are. They find it hard to receive your abundant grace and peace. I pray, I pray, give them a breakthrough, Lord. Lord, open their hearts, Father, that they may receive more of all that you've done, that they would come to a greater realization of who you are toward them in Jesus. Lord, I pray, break off religiosity. Lord, break off that sense of condemnation and guilt and shame and replace all of those negative emotions and thoughts with life and truth in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Let's, let's share together in communion as you receive it. Let's just take a moment to reflect on Christ, on the beauty of his name, on his worth. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.